You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Serene Cotter. Serene is a moral political philosopher working primarily on feminist issues and global justice. Her other philosophical interests include ethics, moral psychology, and political philosophy. She holds the J. Newman Chair in Philosophy of Culture at Brooklyn College and is also an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. Cotter is the author of Adaptive Preferences and Women's Empowerment, and her latest book, Decolonizing Universalism, Transnational Feminist Ethics, is forthcoming with Oxford University Press. The book concerns the normative commitments required for cross-border feminist solidarity. In this episode, we talk about cross-border feminist solidarity, neoliberalism, tradition and feminism, does Muslim women need saving, writing advice, and so much more. Hello, Serena. Welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Maisha. Thank you for coming on. Tell me, Serena, how did you get interested in philosophy? Yeah, I think that for me, when I think about it, it really started when I was young and has a lot to do with my experiences having parents who were immigrants. So I know a lot of people will talk about coming to philosophy because they read a certain book or something like that. But for me, I think it has to do with always having felt kind of not at home in any world. So I just remember growing up feeling like I lived in these two worlds. Like there was this world that was the world of my home that had to some extent to do with the culture that I had inherited from my parents. And then there was the world that was happening at school. And at school, there were all of these things that were like, oh, everyone just knows that you're supposed to follow this certain set of conventions. And I just never knew what they were. And I was constantly playing catch up. And so I think because of that, like this idea that there's a certain way that things are that you're not supposed to question just never really solidified for me. So because I was always in that space of kind of wondering, like, what are the norms that apply here? I have to learn these norms and follow them. And then there's another set of norms that I'm also aware of. I I think that just made me always curious about like, well, where do all of these things that people take for granted come from? And yeah, why, why are conventions worth following? And those are the questions that always, that really brought me into philosophy. Generally speaking, tell us what is feminism and what is transnational feminism? Okay. So this is a big question. So to start with, yeah, it's a bigger (laughs) question than it seems like maybe But the definition of feminism that I like to use comes from Bell Hooks, and or she's one of the first people who articulated it. And she said in her early work in the 80s that feminism was opposition to sexist oppression. She later revised her definition to say that feminism was opposition to all intersecting oppressions. And basically, my view is that we should use both of those definitions, but use different ones in different contexts. And I think that we should use the sexist oppression one in transnational context for reasons that I can explain. But before I get ahead of myself, I should say a little bit about what oppression is. So oppression on Marilyn Fry's classic definition occurs when you have practices that 
systematically target members of certain social groups and disadvantage them to like relative to other groups. So feminism is opposition. If it's opposition to sexist oppression, it's opposition to the form of oppression that happens when members of certain genders are systematically subordinated. In terms of the question of what transnational feminisms is, so a lot of your listeners might have heard of global feminisms, and that was kind of a a phrase that people use kind of in the 80s and a little bit in the 90s. And the idea of global feminisms was kind of the idea that women are facing the same struggles everywhere, the same struggle against patriarchy, and all women need to kind of unite around their shared struggle against patriarchy. Transnational feminisms is one of the approaches to feminist to like international feminism that questions that framing. And it basically says that in order to think about feminist solidarity, we need to constantly be thinking about the history of imperialism and also kind of the ways that ongoing neoliberal capitalist exploitation and ongoing northern driven in particular, but not exclusively militarism affect the opportunities for women to organize across borders. So it's not kind of as simple as, oh, women everywhere experience the same form of oppression because they're all oppressed by men, even though I do think that most or all women are oppressed by sexism. The fact is that because women in the global north or in the west benefit or have benefited from the subjugation of other women, sometimes it's important for women in positions of privilege over other women and who are actively promoting exploitation and domination of other women to take those things into account when they're trying to determine what their moral and political responsibilities to those women are. So you mentioned solidarity, and we're going to talk about solidarity a little bit more. But I I wonder, is solidarity kind of a necessary and sufficient condition for feminism? Is solidarity always the goal? Is it Uh, issue of of utility when it comes to feminism? What do you see the role of solidarity in feminism? Ooh, that's a hard question. I don't know if I know the answer. What do you mean when you say, is it an issue of utility? Well, is it, oh, okay, so we got to be united in some sense, right, in order to end oppression, and that's what we're using solidarity for? Or do you think that feminism itself, right, to be true feminist is to to be in solidarity? Yeah, so I guess I think that what it means to be a feminist is to be committed to opposing sexist oppression. So in that sense, if you believe that sexist oppression is a genuine moral problem and that it exists in various places around the world, then you think in general, yeah, it's a good thing to take political stances that will work against ending women's oppression or ending sexist oppression. But I think it's really important to say in that same breath that given the the fact of historical and ongoing imperialism, Some of the acts that are solidaristic to other women may not be the ones that seem like the obvious right ones to people in the global north or to women in the West. So Alison Jagger, in her important article, Saving Amina, for example, talks about how the most solidaristic thing to do in some cases for Western women will be to stop contributing to the domination of women in the global south by opposing the economic policies of the countries in the global north. So I think that, yeah, I mean, if you're a feminist, probably you have to believe in and support some kind of solidarity. But the form that that solidarity has to take does not mean, and in most cases probably shouldn't mean, 
directly intervening. In fact, like directly intervening to take over other people's oppositions to their own oppression, I would say is not even really solidarity, right? Like solidarity says that you're standing with another person as an equal saying, I'm going to like offer an analysis of your world for you and decide what kind of political action should happen in your context is really like, it's more treating someone not as an equal. It's treating someone more like somebody who is subordinate to you, who, whose own kind of evaluations of their own situation you don't take seriously. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What are some of the, I guess I'll call them hot topic issues that Western feminism seems to be most concerned about when it comes to the struggle of women in the global South? And is it even proper to call them struggles? And what should be, who should be in the position of doing so? Yeah, I love this question. I love all your questions. <laughs> but I, I guess par- part of why I loved it is that you use the word struggle. And I want to think a little bit about what the word struggle means, because there's two different things that it could mean. One that we hear a lot about and one that we hear almost nothing about. So struggle could mean like po- the political activism that women in the global South are engaged in. And that's real. That's happening every day. And we don't tend to hear that much about it in the global north. And especially in philosophy, there's actually almost no literature um, that talks seriously about third world women's movements and transnational women's movements and women's movements from the global south. On the other hand, I guess struggle could mean like the travails and horrible lives of women in the global south. And I think, you know, that's how we're used to hearing struggles talked about and in her famous essay in the 90s under Western eyes, Chandra Mohanty, she said that Westerners have this image of like the single third world woman and that the features of her life are that she's ignorant, poor, uneducated, tradition bound, domestic, family oriented and victimized. And so I think, I mean, struggle could mean that, right? Like when you people think about struggles of women in the global South, what they I think they often are imagining in the West is women facing these horrible life conditions, often, you know, the, the issues that people really love to talk about. And anytime I talk about my work, right, the first two things people want to talk to me about are severe female genital cutting and women being forced to engage in various forms of Islamic dress. So those are, and then also, of course, domestic violence. So those are the kind of topics that we hear a lot being talked about by feminists and audiences in the global north. Of course, I mean, those things are real and are genuine moral problems. But I think there's a couple different important things to recognize about them. One is just that they don't expose the whole truth about what other women's lives are like, right? Like there's no single truth about what other in quotation women's lives are like. Because the only thing that other, I like to say this to my students, and Mohanty called this the the third world difference, but other women don't have anything actually in common except their definition of being in contrast to us, like the enlightened West. So like, there isn't a real answer to the question, like, what are the needs of these other women? Because they're, they are not this pre-constituted group. They're a diverse group that have diverse needs and diverse strategies. But the other problem, which gets talked a lot about in the transnational and postcolonial literature, is that basically why people love to talk about issues like female genital cutting is that these are harms to other women that are easy to attribute to their cultures, 
easy to attribute to being caused by, because there's a, like a racist element toward men in the global South here too. So they're easy to be attributed to being caused by barbaric brown and black men. They're easy to attribute to religions and so on. And that makes it very, if those are the issues we focus on, um, it's very convenient for the West because we get to, and the North, we get to absolve ourselves of moral responsibility for causing any harms that women in the global South might be facing. A final, because I know I'm kind of going on for a bit here, but just one other problem with framing the struggles of women in the global South that way is that we hear a lot about, yeah, we hear a lot about the third world women and women in the global South as victims of these practices. And we don't hear very much about the things that they are doing to stop these practices. And also, we don't hear about the things, the other feminist things that they're doing, because sometimes they have other priorities, both because of the way that sexist oppression manifests in their lives, and because sometimes, tragically, opposing other oppressions may have to take priority and maybe the rational thing to do, given what, like the fact that they have to agitate against multiple oppressions in order to improve their own well-being. So I guess the other kind of danger of focusing on these issues is that it really causes us to overlook the ways in which women in the global South are agents. And they use that agency often to come up with political strategies that are actually more effective and smarter at overcoming the manifestations of sexist oppression in their communities. You know that a a problematic response from women in the West to the struggle of women and the global South has been a promotion of, of universal values. Give us some examples of this. Yeah. So this is kind of a funny question for me because I am in favor of promoting universal values. So actually <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> no. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you're asking the question because it helps me sort of say where I think the existing debate is and what I think is right about it. So I think you have to believe in universal values to be a feminist. I also think you have to believe in universal values to be an anti-imperialist, right? At the end of the day, I think what we're saying, if we believe in those things, are that imperialist oppression is bad and sexist oppression is bad. And that's, you know, that is just morally true. I actually think that believing in those universal values is not the cause of the problematic things that and the oppressive things that have become sort of commonplace in Western feminism. And nor do I think that postcolonial and transnational feminists are actually usually arguing against universalism of the moral type. So I think what most postcolonial, decolonial, and transnational feminists are really arguing against, well, I think they're arguing against two things. One is, I think that they are sometimes arguing against claims that are descriptive universalism. So by that, I think they're arguing against claims that that certain facts about the world are universally true. So for example, there's a big literature in transnational feminisms about the idea that earning an income will liberate women. So, or, or, and to make it into like a factual claim, the claim that earning an income will increase women's well-being. Well, that's something that, you know, is mostly just a fact about the world. It varies from context to context. One of the reasons that harmful interventions that increase women's work burdens and decrease their negotiating power have happened is partly because of people just getting the facts wrong about how relationships work and the effects of income in different contexts. So I think sometimes people are like the universalism that's wrong is just a universalism about what the facts are, not a universalism about what values we should endorse. 
But I also think that at the end of the day, and this is kind of the main point of the new book that I'm writing, I think that saying that, like the debate between Western or what I call missionary feminists and transnational feminists or postcolonial or decolonial feminists is a debate about universalism and relativism. I think that that is a convenient move that a lot of people in the sort of Western liberal missionary position take in order to avoid having to engage with the other literatures. So I think that what is really going on is that the transnational, postcolonial, and decolonial feminist literatures are saying, no, like there are universal values. Westerners are just wrong about what they are, right? Like there are universal values. They just aren't the ones that are like expressed in Western culture. And then I think it's really convenient for people in sort of like the Western and liberal position to say, oh, we need to oppose relativism because it, what that does is, you know, like it's a question begging response from a philosophical perspective, right? Like it doesn't like it prevents you from actually talking about the issue at hand, which is which are the right universal values to have. And instead it says, well, the only possible universal values are the values that have been adopted by the West. And if you don't believe in these, then you are a moral relativist. And clearly we can't have that as the solution. And I really want to reject that way of thinking and say, no, like, let's have a universalism, but like, let's have a real conversation about what the values of that universalism should be. And let's specifically talk about whether the values that transnational feminists have accused of being vehicles for imperialism are the actual values that feminists need to endorse. So I wonder in what account my inclination or my guess would be the latter is connected to justifying exploitation and cultural domination. So. What is the connection between, okay, there's these universal values out there with exploitation? One thing that is happening in the world right now that I think we should be concerned about is the rise of neoliberalism that has been documented to have really adverse economic impacts on women and on the poor in general. And let me just ask you this. Neoliberalism has just been thrown around lately on blogs. and on. So, so just tell us exactly what you mean by that. So neoliberalism is basically an approach to making economic policy that says that the solution or like the right way to make economic policy is to reduce restrictions on trade and to cut social services. So you want to have freer markets and lesser availability of social services. And one way to think about both of those things is that it is sort of a narrowing of the role of the state. And often people who are in favor of neoliberalism believe that, and not all of them do, but believe that these things, so freer markets and less state involvement will re- like result in some kind of greater freedom for people. So this economic agenda that we call neoliberalism has been driving sort of Northern-led financial and development policy for some time now. One of the, um, and in, in particular in poor countries, Northern governments and institutions led by Northern governments have really dramatically shaped the policies also that poor countries are implementing in their own countries in ways that cut social spending and in ways that liberalize markets. So one way that a universal value can that ha- has been claimed to be necessary for feminism can promote exploitation has to do with the idea that liberating women from the household, which is 
operationalized as getting women to earn an income is going to liberate them from sexist oppression. So all over the world, we have these development policies that are organized around the idea, oh, like it's feminist to liberate women from being controlled by the men in their household. So what should we do about that? Oh, we should make it possible for women to earn an income. Now, Sylvia Chant has done a lot of really good work about this, about a phenomenon that she calls the feminization of responsibility. And what she basically finds through a bunch of cross-cultural empirical studies is that actually, in many cases, what's happening when women are encouraged to earn incomes is that the amount of household labor that they're doing doesn't decrease. So now they're just, and I mean, I think also women in the West have experienced with some kind of this, right? Like we know that in the West, women still do the vast majority of the housework and care work, even if they are the, you know, the, even the main breadwinner for their household. But, you know, when a person is, actually, there was a, a study that I cite in the book, I'm trying to remember who does it, where they find that these women in India, once they put together their um, housework and their income work that they are working for 18 hours a day. And then the study concludes that they need to use their spare time to think about how to economically better themselves. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, that's kind of crazy. But in terms of connecting it to universal values, I think what's going, like one part of what's going on here is that people have in their mind the idea, like the correct idea that relationships of certain sorts and household labor can be parts of the things that cause oppression to women. I think they also have wrongly in their head, though, this, what I call in my new book, the Enlightenment liberal narrative or the, the Enlightenment teleological narrative, which basically also says that the oppression of women is caused by tradition and capitalism will liberate them from tradition. So I think this idea that like universally what we need is to make women into economic individuals who will be capable of earning their own incomes. And that's along with that, the idea that that somehow is magically going to cause women not to be oppressed by men. That kind of view is causing interventions that don't improve people's lives. In some cases, seems to be worsening sexist oppression. And I think... If we had better values, we would be less likely to think that this thing that is actually harming women looks like it's a benefit to women. So let's talk about tradition a little bit more. Yeah. You claim that people in the West have a tendency to see other people's ways of life as a tradition, but they don't look at their own way of life as such. How so and what is problematic about this? Yeah, great. Okay. Just to explain it. A little bit. My view is, and this is not just my view, it's a common view in postcolonial and decolonial literature. But my view is that Westerners often think of themselves as having modernity and have been kind of sold a story about their own the history of their own countries and the history of the world that's about modernity. And part of that story about modernity says, look, Tradition was this backward thing that kind of oppressed everyone. Everyone began in this like traditional or barbaric kind of structure. And then because of a series of developments that, according to this narrative, were caused by endogenous factors, like meaning internal factors to the West. So according to that narrative, the West had these internal factors that made it step away from tradition, become modern. And Part of what I just want to really emphasize is that the word modern is not a morally neutral word, right? Like if you say that you're modern, 
usually what you are saying is that you have achieved a certain level of moral progress. So I think the West is already telling itself this story that's like, the West story says we are modern. We, what that means is that we have liberated ourselves from tradition and tradition is the source of all of these bad things that happen to people, including sexist depression. So you ask kind of what's the problem with that? Well, I think there's two answers to it. So one is just that I think that it's, I mean, it's false, especially the idea. I mean, so that narrative is false because it overlooks the history of colonialism, right? Like it says that the reason that the West is supposedly modern or developed and other people aren't has to do with the internal features of those societies and not Western imperialist domination. So that's part of why the narrative is false. But also, I mean, the view that Westerners don't have traditions is simply false, right? Like we can play a lot with how we define the word tradition, but of course, every, I mean, part of what it means to be a human being that's socialized is that you inherit certain beliefs and practices before an age where you are really in a place to separate or question yourself from or question them. You could try to separate yourself from them later, but you would already have been constituted by them. So I think it's just false that people in the West don't have traditions. And there's a, a joke in one of the responses, actually, to Susan Okins' is Multiculturalism Bad for Women, where one of the essays, which I think is by Homi Baba, but I'll double check this, is, ca- is called Liberalism Sacred Cow. So I think he's kind of trying to point to that idea. Like, of course, people in the West have traditions. But okay, to say where the problem really is, though, yeah, like the first problem is it's false. But the second problem And this is where I think the moral and political danger really is, is that it makes it look like requests, what are really requests for uh, like cultural others to uh, to adopt Western culture. It looks instead like what you're doing when you ask people to do that is just to become free or to just start making your own choices or asking questions. So. The danger is like if you think that freedom from tradition is good and then you also think Westerners don't have tradition, what it lets you do is ask people to adopt Western traditions and not see that you're doing that, right? Like you think instead like, oh, I'm just asking you to be free and ask questions or I'm just asking you to become modern. So so I really, I started reflecting about that a lot. And what led me to write about that particular topic was that I was Living in France in the years after um, the ban on the hijab in public schools was happening. And I was paying a lot of attention to sort of the French coverage. And it was actually kind of surprising to live in France and to see that most of the people I interacted with who identified as feminist really believed that this was the feminist solution to ban wearing headscarves in public schools. And when I analyzed the sort of rhetoric around that, it seemed a lot like what was going on is like, so you would ask, you know, why do you think it's a feminist and important thing to not be allowed to wear a headscarf to school? And you would often like you would constantly get answers that were about freedom coupled with sort of an unwillingness to question whether any French gender protocols were patriarchal. Anytime like any mainstream French gender protocols were like kind of you questioned whether they were patriarchal, you would kind of be like laughed out of the room a little bit. Like once I was like, isn't wearing high heels patriarchal? And, you know, some of them would acknowledge that, but then they would say, oh, but it's a choice. 
So anything that was part of the French gender protocol got painted as a choice. Anything that was part of the gender protocol that they, they associated with Islam got painted as something that people were coerced into doing. And in Joan Scott's book about this, which I think is really good, she actually cites a story where a French official is kind of complaining in public about the tragedy of, quote, young girls covering up their beautiful faces. Wow. So <laughs> I think, I know, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's also terrible. But <laughs> it's, it's funny in a bunch of ways. One of them, which is totally like not quite on this point, is I don't really know what hijabs have to do with covering people's faces. Like you exactly. see that it's like a, it's just that all of everything associated with Islam has been bundled into this ball for them. But also, I mean, I think more germane to the point I'm trying to make now is just that the idea that women should be available to be sexually objectified in public right. for him was like, oh, this is modernity. And obviously it is just a good thing to when you are young to have your beauty on display for people. So to me, that seemed like it's like a case where, no, what you're really asking is for people to adopt your own culturally specific and patriarchal conception of how gender should be lived. And yet you keep saying that all you're doing is asking people to abandon their traditions, asking people to be free and make choices. So I know this is going to be a, a big question, but is it possible to be a traditionalist and a feminist? Uh, okay. This might be one of the smallest questions for me because I have, oh, good. I have a clear answer to this. Um, so I think the answer is yes, absolutely. It's possible to be a traditionalist and be a feminist. But, and then here's the qualifying remark, it depends on what the content of your tradition is. So, so I think that a nice thing about thinking about feminism as opposition to sexist oppression is that it actually kind of, it moves the language about freedom and choice and modernity kind of off center stage and moves instead to asking the question like, well, what do you believe about like whether gender should be hierarchically arranged to each other? And my point is, in the stuff that I've written about this, that actually it doesn't matter where you believe that that belief came from, right? Like if you believe that sexist oppression is wrong, if you believe that, you know, the like one gender should not have um, more power and resources than another or than others, you believe in feminism and it doesn't matter where you think that belief came from, right? Like if you can think that you, that belief came from your reason and be some kind of anti-traditionalist, but you absolutely can think that that belief came from God or that that belief came from the tradition of your people. And I think when you look at the activism and work of um, a lot of feminists working in the global South and in the paper I've written about this, I focus on Islamic feminist movements you see that it is an actual thing that is going on in the world that lots of people are saying, I oppose sexism like because it, it is part of the dictates of my tradition, right? Like I oppose sexism um, because gender equality just is the, the spirit of the Quran. So I talk, so some of the people who are doing that kind of work are Islamic feminists, like, also well, that term is controversial in itself, but people like Amina Wadud. I also, um, like a, an example of activism based on that is 
an organization in Morocco and in, the, in North Africa called Collectif Maghreb Egalité um, 95. And that group was basically, it said, like, we're going to appeal to both Islamic and secular justifications to explain why we think gender equality is important. But we don't, why should we only appeal to secular justifications? And some people don't want to appeal to secular justifications at all, right? So Amina Wadud, actually, and part of why I talk about her a bit in the work is that she really says, like, part of what it means to me to be a Muslim is just that I do not get to question the Quran, right? Like, what the Quran says is just something that I, I accept. I am a believer, so I have to submit to it. But then, you know, in the same breath, she's saying, good thing that the Quran clearly says that sexist depression is a bad thing. So yeah, my view about this is, of course, you can be a traditionalist and a feminist. You just have to believe that your tradition says that gender inequality or sexist depression are bad things. So this leads us to where we began in a way. What do you imagine cross-border feminist solidarity to look like? That is a great question. So, I mean, solidarity has to look different, I think, from what it has looked like historically and from the way that philosophers and theorists often have imagined it in the past in order to um, to take seriously the facts of imperialism. But I do think, because, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about the ways in which imperialism interferes with the possibility for solidarity. I want to be really clear that I'm not actually pessimistic about it. Like, I think real solidarity is happening every day. I just think that the solidarity, like, requires taking certain things seriously. Um, so one of them is that I think it requires realizing, and this is what I've spent a lot of time talking about just now, that feminism is opposition to sexist depression. And what that means is that feminism doesn't have to require adopting the norms of any particular culture, right? Like, you can have your own sort of cultural set of practices. The real question for feminism is not what should your cultural practices be? It's should your practices be like, how can your practices be organized in a way that doesn't subordinate women? So one thing that I think is necessary for solidarity is just recognizing that feminism doesn't require the adoption of any specific cultural form, even if it does require universal opposition to sexist oppression. Second, I think it's really important for especially Western and Northern feminists to, when they engage in activism, to recognize the ways in, in which their activism could actually worsen the problems of the women's lives that they are, that they're trying to help. And so, and not, I mean, some of that worsening can happen concretely, like you can literally make a person's material life worse. But another way that Westerners can make other people's lives worse is by engaging in activism that's whose main effect is to reproduce the view that Western intervention is the solution to everything and that other cu countries and cultures are barbaric. So yeah, maybe I'll give an example of how this was done, how somebody avoided this in a minute here. But the other, and this kind of leads toward what I, um, the third thing I was about to say, which is that Solidarity from women in the West and North or from people in the West and North needs to move away from the idea that Western intervention is the solution to other women's problems. Like that doesn't mean that Western intervention is never appropriate, but Uma Narayan really helpfully talked about the idea that Western feminists are caught up in something that she called the missionary position. And the idea was, you know, it's also <laughs> funny, but the idea was that Westerners often think and have set up their understanding of the world in a, a way where they think that the only thing that can be done about 
practices that oppress women in other societies is for Westerners to name them because right, supposedly people in other countries think that the oppression of women is fine according to this view. So Westerners are the only ones who can recognize the wrongness. And then Westerners are the only ones who can fix it. So I think also feminist solidarity needs to move away from the intervention obsession. When it does do interventions, do them like, and I don't mean military interventions, right? I mean, like supporting development projects that are run by local women. But when it does do them, it needs to do them more attentively and to take local piece of people's voices very, very seriously and to have them leading, but also to realize that sometimes the right thing for Western feminists to do is to change the behavior of their own governments. And then the last thing that I think is really important for solidarity now is just for people to, for Westerners and people in the North to recognize that that there are really strong reasons and the reasons don't have to be relativist reasons. Like there's strong universalist reasons to amplify and pay attention to women in the global South's own beliefs about what should happen to change the conditions that they live under. So people's own perspectives about what's happening to them are extremely important Also, there is, because there's no one way, like no single strategy for ending sexist oppression in any particular context, we really need to know what the people who are in the context, what they see as the trade-offs that they might face with any strategy for change are, and what they think the priorities are. Because uh, every situation about what we should actually do politically will be different. So Yeah, I would say that feminist solidarity kind of requires acknowledging those four things. I, in the book, one of the the things, one of the examples that I talk about as a, like a successful example of solidarity, because I know I said a lot of negative things about what solidarity shouldn't be, is the activism of a group called the Freedom Without Fear movement or the Freedom Without Fear platform in the UK. And that was a solidarity movement formed in the UK, largely by South Asian and Black women in response to the gang rape and eventual death of Jyoti Singh Pandey, who later became known as Nirbhaya in Delhi. And are you familiar with that case? Okay, so so without going into a ton of detail about the case, what had happened is that this young woman had been very brutally raped and murdered on a bus in Delhi. Yes, yes, yes. I'm yeah. familiar with okay, it. Okay, yeah. that's why I'm bringing it up to just kind of jog people's memories about it. Yeah. And this was a real kind of catalyze, like a, moment, a catalyzing moment for anti-sexual assault work in India. So, and that really did successfully in India kind of result in changes to the legal structure and especially the focus on honor and victim blaming in the legal conversations around sexual assault in India. And there were thousands of people marching in the streets in the weeks after. So this UK movement was kind of saying, well, how can we support the activism of the women um, that and the people that are marching in India without sort of reinforcing the without either engaging in activities that worsen it, but also without reinforcing the view that rape is something that only happens in India. So one of like Kavita Krishnan, who was one of the activists in India, says that she got called like over and over again. And when she was interviewed by Western newspapers, people always wanted to say, oh, things are so bad in India, right? Like the, it must be so bad to have to deal with so much rape in India. 
So one of the things that the Freedom Without Fear platform UK did was really try to put out a lot of material that was designed to showcase the ways in which the UK government and multinational corporations were involved in helping promote rape culture and the presence of rape in India. So for example, they showcased the ways in which multinational mining corporations were using rape as a tool to silence indigenous women um, in one region of India. They also talked about how within the UK um, and mobilized around this resources for that were for for domestic violence and violence against women that had been allocated to local women-run organizations had actually been removed, and that funding even within the UK had been removed from organizations that were community-led to stop violence against women and had forced um, had focused on forced marriage and criminalizing and incarcerating men instead of doing something to actually stop violence against women. They also, one of the kind of most interesting things that they did was organize against Narendra Modi, who is a, who is the prime minister of India and who was, who is a supporter of the kind of fundamentalism that the religious fundamentalism that the Indian activists were trying to fight against and that they saw as promoting rape culture. So these activists in the UK, um, they said like, okay, what can we do to stand in solidarity with the women in India? Well, one thing we can do is say that we in the UK, like, don't support the fundamentalist leader that is promoting these very harmful and sexist responses to rape. So they organized protests of Modi's visit to the UK um, and tied the UK support for him to support for um, the prevalence of sexual assault in India. So There's, I mean, people often want to know, like, what can we do? I thought that this activism was a really good example of what what can be done. That's still an example of solidarity, but that refuses to fall into the narrative that says that, like, other cultures, in quotation marks, are backward and, like, harbor sexual assault and violence, and that Northerners are modern, don't do that, and bear no causal relationship to the harm that other women experience. No, I think that was an excellent example. So, Serene, you are you are a powerlifter. What got you? What got you interested in the sport, and what have you learned about yourself as a result of doing it? So, okay, um, I'm going to use a word that makes me feel like a little bit like a cliche, but in terms of how I got into it. I was kind of an early adopter of CrossFit many years ago. (laughs) And I think like a lot of women who discover CrossFit or did at that time, it was the first place that I experienced women kind of being encouraged to work with barbells. It was the first time I experienced a fitness community that was not super focused on aesthetic goals that really put performance-based goals first. And I loved that part. I loved the barbell training. I didn't love the rest of it. And once I learned like, oh, I can just lift weights if I want to. (laughs) I can just lift really heavy weights if I want to. I really veered toward that. And it was really kind of important for me because I had known for um, a lot of my life that I was stronger than most other people. But, you know, as a woman, I was not I was not really trained to think that that was a good thing. So it was amazing to come into, into a sport where the view was that it's a good thing for women to be strong. It's an okay thing for women to take up space. Um, it's okay to grunt and make noise. All of those things were part of what got me into the sport. 
What, what is your personal best? Is that how you all term it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Personal best works. My highest squat, I think, is I think it's 325 pounds. And my highest deadlift is 375 pounds. And I'm not going to tell you my highest bench press because I suck. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I, I'm already impressed. So yeah. I joke that my upper and lower body belong to two different people. <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So what have you learned about yourself? So I think a lot of what I have learned about myself is has to do with grit and perseverance. I think powerlifting is like, it's really a sport where you just have to put in the work over and over again to see results. Like, and it's also, it's a sport that often gets boring because right, like you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And once you've been doing it for a while, like sometimes you're doing it over and over again to be able to add 0.25 pounds to your lift. So it's partly about just learning to keep doing things over and over again to put in the work, um, which I think philosophers often think that like work happens through flashes of insight or through these moments where something amazing happens. I think a lot of what I've learned is that that's not always how you accomplish something. A lot of how you accomplish something is just by doing the same thing over and over again. And also like, you know, when you drop the ball or you drop the barbell, literally like the, the important thing is that you don't get scared. And the important thing is that you come back and do it again. I also just want to say as a plug for powerlifting in particular, you know, I think it's a really great sport for philosophers. <laughs> Obviously you should do what you want, but here's why. I, I mean, I think I know you have a bit of this too, Maisha, but like, I think a lot of us just have trouble turning off our brains sometimes. And one of the amazing things about powerlifting, if you're lifting really heavy weights is, and I think this is probably like a biological thing, but when your body knows that like you are lifting an amount of weight that like it could kill you if you like, if you are, if you put this amount of weight on your back and like sit down and now you need to stand up suddenly, like your mind cannot be focused on the meaning of life or the conversation that you had with a colleague or that paper you're writing. Like, in that moment, you are really like forced to have nothing in the world except you and that barbell. I'm semi-convinced. <laughs> well, I, I'm not, I'm not against it. No, it's persuasive. It's persuasive. I'm just not tall enough. <laughs> no, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. You've also been a director of Pixie Rock at Penn State, and it's a program that encourages diversity and philosophy. Why is diversity important for you? Well, first, I just want to say that I, you also have been a part of Pixie Rock. And I really, <laughs> no, I really want to thank you for your work there. So Mayusha was um, a graduate assistant at Pixie Rock before and did really important work also contributing to efforts to diversify the profession there. Well, thank you, Serene. But so thank you. No, I just think, I mean, in terms of why diversity is important is that, so philosophy is this practitioner, which is overwhelmingly populated by people in dominant social positions. I mean, not just by men, but like by white, cis, able-bodied men of a certain social class. And why is that a problem? Well, to me, I mean, the obvious reason is that, of course, that has biased our understanding of what the human experience is and what questions are philosophically interesting, right? Like philosophy says that it's asking questions about the human experience and about the nature of truth. But it just seems very clear to me that if we only ask those questions to one group of people, we're going to get a really limited understanding of or what's true. And I think I would take that farther and say, we're going to get a biased and false understanding of what's true in many cases. So 
I think that the only way to undo that bias is just to have um, a lot to expose people to a lot of different ways of thinking about the world and also to have different people in different social positions philosophizing about the same objects. Like I, because I do think that the social position that you occupy probably does affect the way that you see the world. And just to kind of tell a little personal story about that. So in philosophy, we spend a lot of time using like things that we call thought experiments to test our intuitions. And basically we're trying to say like, how do we come up with a theory that is consistent with the intuitions that we have? And I just remember throughout undergrad, constantly having the wrong intuitions and often talking to other women and people of color. I mean, I guess wrong should be in quotation marks, but not having the intuitions that were in the text often said to be obvious or like, clearly this is not the answer, but I would think it was the answer. And I would often talk to other women of people of color and they would share my intuitions. And, but at the time I was like, but no, it says that this other thing is obvious. And I guess I was smart enough to realize, okay, I need, I know now what the intuition I'm supposed to have is. I'll pretend that I have it and organize my answer to the question around the intuition that I'm supposed to have. But clearly, like, that's not the, the type of practice that's going to lead us to better knowledge about philosophical questions. It would be a better thing if we could, instead of trying to kind of almost I mean, bully is the wrong word, but to like, I mean, in some cases it's the right word, but, you know, just shoehorn people into having a certain set of intuitions and then be like, how do we confirm them? It seems like it would just be a better thing to, to have a diverse group of people doing philosophy. And then it would be much easier to tell when what we're talking about are just the intuitions of a certain social group or whether what we're talking about are intuitions that are shared by all people. So one of the one of the memorable experiences that I had at Pixie was before students came, we had uh, several sessions and workshops. And I remember we had a, a writing session with you and you gave us some wonderful writing advice that I followed to this day. Right. So to me, I don't know if that's no, true. no, no, up at 430. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying as far as like productivity and writing advice that you gave us, I, I still carry it with me. This stuck with me. So I'm wondering to, to a person who is now a senior scholar like yourself. What writing or productivity advice do you think is most important for junior scholars? So first, Mayusha, that means so much to me. And your productivity always impresses me. Can I, before I say my advice, can I just ask what part of it resonated with you? Okay. So the part that resonated with me is like binging is just not a good look. Okay. <laughs> why, why, would you, why would you do that, right? The return on investment goes down after a certain amount of hours. So why even put yourself... I was also impressed by the fact that you said, and this is a quote, not, this is not exact quote. I published 10 articles and, you know, you were saying, you know, I, I had this chair position and I've never worked on the weekends. And I was like, whoa, I mean, she's, I mean, th that, that really resonated with, and you were even talking about as far as like binging, taking advantage of like the small moments that you have to write. And like that has stuck with me. Well, Mayusha, you know, I made some notes for myself about what to say. And you, um, you basically just rattled off, no, my three main points. No, that's great. It makes that really, I mean, that convinces me that it resonated with you. So I will just to kind of repeat them and also to say, I don't mean binging about food. I mean, binge writing. No, you mean binge writing, People yes. can eat. <laughs> I want people to eat whatever they want. But yeah, basically the three pieces of advice that I tend to focus on, which all came up in your answers, are um, one, that you should learn to write in small chunks. 
and that, you know, 20 minutes or even five minutes can be worth it. And one thing I say to, you know, especially to people who are in grad school is just that if, if you happen to be in a privileged position in grad school in the sense of, you know, not having people who are dependent on you and not having to work an extra job, you may have like for the only time in your life, all this unstructured time to write and get used to writing in these eight to 12 hour chunks and then not writing for two weeks at a time or something like that. And, but the reality is um, if you want to have an economic career eventually, and also if you want to have relationships with other people, because I think that's another important thing. If you want to have relationships with people who are not academics, they're probably not going to be fine with your saying like, okay, I'm going to disappear for two weeks now and not talk to you to go, um, to go write, deal with it. So I think it's a good thing to train yourself early on to be able to, um, to write in small chunks and to take advantage of small pieces of time. And, um, there's, there's this great, um, psychologist named Robert Boyce, who's written extensively about this and did some empirical research about it. And he followed groups of young faculty and or, you know, untenured faculty and just found that the binge writers, even though they were convinced that they were producing more, were actually producing less. Um, so the first thing is to learn in um, small, learn to write in small chunks of time. The second thing is, and Maisha, this came up in what you said too, but is just to acknowledge that there are diminishing returns to working more. I think it's easy, especially if you are in, and not everyone is around this, but it's really easy in academia to get surrounded by cultures of people who make it seem like all they're doing is reading and working. Like I remember that when I was in grad school, we had these offices and people would stay in the offices for like 12 to 14 hours a day. And I was like, I'm supposed to be working for 12 to 14 hours a day. That's like how I show that I um, am really committed to this. I think it's just really important to realize that it, it's not true that mar- working more is always working better. And like you should find out how much you can work um, where it's worth it and where you need to scale back. And that kind of leads me to my third piece of advice, um, which is that you should study yourself. Um, so by that, I mean, you should really like spend some time finding out what writing practices work for you, because I do believe that people are different. And how I've recommended that people study themselves is um, just to, I mean, I have created an, in the past Excel spreadsheets where I write down things like what, um, what time was it? How much did I work that day? Um, how many words did I write? Um, was, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to test, right? But you might, one time I was curious whether I got as much done in coffee shops or at home. One time I wanted to know what time of day was best for me. And you can learn so much about yourself to work more effectively by doing that because you'll notice p- patterns right off the bat. And I think, Maisha, one of the things I probably said to you guys was that I only write for four hours a day um, and I almost never exceed that amount. And part of why I did that actually was because once I had made that type of ex- Excel spreadsheet, um, I realized really quickly that I wasn't accomplishing more in six hour days than four hour days. So like in terms of word count and in terms of the, like the quality of the work that was coming out. So then why write for six hours? If you get more done in four, um, go do something else that will help you also lead a fulfilling life, um, and make you into kind of a, a well-rounded person with relationships and rich other things going on. Um, use those two hours for that instead of for just convincing yourself that you're working all the time. (laughs) Yeah, this is helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maisha. Um, The last time that you, I was introducing you, you made me say that I loved you. And I (laughs) tell you that, no, I want to tell you again that I love you and that 
I'm going to tell your listeners that um, you did not tell me to say it this time. <laughs> so I love you and I love this podcast. And I think you're doing such a great thing um, in making all these interviews available to people. Well, thank you so much, Serene, for giving us your time, your intellect, your brilliance, and your advice. I know that they really appreciate it. Back at you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.